In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 10. And it's not a extremely long 10 verses. So what I would like to do is uh, look back to see in context what we're actually dealing with today as we consider the text of Scripture. We'll start with verse 1, as we have for many weeks past. <clears throat> it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was, faith, well, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, almighty God, we come to you uh, this Sunday morning, Lord, to worship you, Lord, and to ask uh, for forgiveness of sin, Lord, and we ask uh, with humble hearts for you to take away that which corrupts our flesh, Lord, and that which would detract us from the cross, God, and we know that because of your Son who has died upon the cross, shed his blood, and drank down the bitter cup, God, that we have remission of sins and that we can bring such petitions before you God and we just ask that you would make us this morning um, a people who are appreciative of what you have done a people who would worship and glorify the great God of creation this Jesus Christ whom is the creator of all things by him being this agent of your creation God he has also come into creation as a man and Lord, this season that we're in uh, around the Christmas holidays, Lord, it, we know that it's not the true birth date of Christ, but what we do recognize is that uh, we can take this day, Lord, like every day and uh, submit unto you and unto your word, Lord, and, and lift you up and praise you for what you have done in this Christ. And the reality, God, is that every day should be a Christmas for us. Lord, every day we should be thankful for Jesus Christ and his blood shed upon that cross. God, and every day we should be obedient and thankful, joyful with everything, knowing that you are at work, God, and that your sovereign plan cannot be thwarted by Satan. Lord, we just praise you for that, Lord, and just ask you this morning to speak to us through the text of Scripture, Lord, that we would see Christ in a way that we have not seen him before, Lord, that we would see our responsibility as man and that yet we would turn back and look to Christ 
and exalt him and lift him up, Lord, and proclaim his name amongst all of creation. Lord, we just ask that you would receive the worship this morning, Lord, that you would bless it, uh, Lord, that you would bless us spiritually in the knowledge of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so looking back to verse 7, so that we're reminded where we came from, it says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoke me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Now, what we have is a reference, and we're really referencing back to Psalm 95, where this is originally written. And it's written about the people of Israel who after the captivity in Egypt have come out, have wandered in this wilderness, and they had, right from the text, provoked God. They had provoked Him because they did not trust in Him. They didn't trust in Him because they truly did not believe His Word. They did not believe His prophet. They did not uh, rely upon the Almighty God who had done so many things. And as we see, there's even a reference... And, and, and God was very gracious in the reference and saw my work for 40 years. But the reality is that all creatures uh, of our God and King, all creation, and, and most assuredly those of, of Israel here, God's chosen people, had seen God's work for much longer than 40 years, right? If they were 40 years old, they had seen uh, God's work for at least as long as they had been alive. But he was even being gracious in this account saying they had seen my my uh, my work and my covering and my protection and my provision for 40 years. But the reality is that even in captivity, God had seen that these people had been provided for. He saw that they still had uh, they still had beasts. They still had bread. They still had homes. They still had clothes. And, and the reality is that even even in this particular portion of Scripture, God has been so gracious and that He didn't bring up everything that He had done. And if He had, we wouldn't have long enough to listen to what He had done. And, and that's how we as Christians should be. And that is our responsibility towards other Christians and to even the unbelieving world that when we do something for someone, I believe there's a model there that we don't have to hold it over their head and we don't have to remind them in every season but there is the appropriate time uh, when those things should be mentioned but I believe God here is setting the model in that with the people of Israel for even these people who are being spoken to and receiving this epistle in the time of the Hebrews here in chapter 3 why because they're dealing with the same heart they're dealing with the same mind as these people the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, what is the problem? Israel was not listening to the voice of God. Now, what they heard was coming from the prophet Moses, and what they had seen were miracles straight from God from heaven. They saw Moses being able to do certain things under the power of God and His Spirit. And what we have today is not only these uh, small accounts, but we have the totality of all scripture that testifies of what works God has physically done. But even greater than that, we have the spiritual truth of seeing this Messiah to whom these people were supposed to be looking. And I find it interesting this morning as we would consider this Christ and how the Jewish people uh, had been converted in Hebrews to this Christ, how they had come to believe that he was the saving uh, Messiah of God, yet somehow they wanted to turn to the rituals and their ceremonies 
and everything else that had come from their fathers, who the text says they, they were unfaithful. They were really, truly unbelieving. They were sending them down this path of, of cultural religiousness that would not save their soul. But what we have in our call to worship, and it happens in Sunday school, and I'm going to reference Sunday school, and I, I hate it if you miss Sunday school because every week the, the Lord is working to prepare in Sunday school for the message that we have in the afternoon. And Pat and I don't collaborate on this. This is the, this is the spirit working in the church that he would set up some of the things that we'll see. But even in the call to worship this morning, we're dealing with exactly what we deal with in Hebrews, that Christ alone is able to save and that people in this time did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that he was Jesus, the man. They believed some that he was the prophet, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 3 when we began. And they believed that he was the apostle. And maybe they believed that he was the high priest, but some would not believe that he was the Christ. But what does Isaiah 9, 6 say? We read it this morning. For unto us a child is born. There's no, there's no disputing that this is Jesus, right? This man Jesus. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And what does the text say right after that? Mighty God. Mighty God. There's no dispute about who Jesus is being the Christ. It says it in Isaiah 9. He is a man and he is mighty God. And that is who we're talking about this morning. And that is what uh, the unbeliever is facing. That is what the Christian even faces. To be reminded that this Jesus is not just the man, but he is the Savior, the Christ. Verse 6. But Christ, it says, was faithful as a son. It's even uh, it's even backing up what we see. Him being this son and this mighty God. And so we see that the people are dealing with this. And how are they described? They're described as, as those being uh, in this day of trial in a wilderness. And we talked about how that wilderness is truly like the wilderness that we face as Christians. This spiritual wilderness in which we're prone to wander. We sing hymns and they say that, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We know. We know that we're prone to wander from salvation. These people had been delivered and they were prone to wander. They even, to some degree, must have enjoyed wandering because no matter how many times God would rebuke the people, they would continue to do what they wanted to do rather than to do what God is commanding. And it says that this is where your fathers, the ones that you hold in high esteem, the ones that you want to follow, this is where they tried me and they tested me. This is where they sinned. That's what the text is really saying. And they saw my work for these 40 years. And then we come to the text this morning. It says, therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their hearts and they did not know my ways. Very interesting choice of words. The original text, Psalm 95, doesn't begin with therefore. But we see that it is here and it is scripture. And there is indeed another word in the original text before the word I was angry. The words I was angry. Because there is a relation being made here. Why was God angry? Why is God angry? Because he is speaking and we aren't listening. And then some 
will listen, but will not hear. This is the hardening of the heart. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. When we hear and when we know what God is saying to do, and we do something totally different. We can boil this down and, and call it plain disobedience. And it sounds a lot like the disobedience of a child, right? They hear what the parent says. They know what the parent expects. But what do they do? They do exactly what they want. And therefore, when that happens, a loving parent is angry at disobedience, right? A loving parent will chastise their child, chasten rather their child with a rod, bringing the child into submission. And this is what the wilderness is all about. The wilderness is not mere punishment, but the wilderness is the way that God has chosen to bring his people into true faith. This is the background the, the stage that is set for unrepentant, unbelieving man to come to the realization through seeing these works. And now we're seeing the cross as the spiritual people is being described here in chapter 3 of Hebrews. And we're seeing now in this wilderness the cross of Christ. And we're saying, hello, we've wandered forever. Where are we going? We're looking for our own way. This isn't working. This way doesn't, doesn't work. This direction is no good. We must look to the cross. These people didn't. Therefore, after seeing this, I was angry. Therefore, I was angry. It's very interesting to consider this just God who is angry, right? And sometimes we, we bring forth the analogy, this picture, an illustration of God as a judge, which he is. And we like to, and I, I've used it even myself and am somewhat convicted over it because it doesn't do the best job of depicting, uh, depicting Christ because we say, you know, no matter how good you do, if you had just given a million dollars to feed hungry children and widows and you had come to church every day of the week, we'll just say that this is Pat. And Pat goes out tomorrow and he does 85 down the highway here. And Pat gets pulled over. Gets a ticket. He goes to court. And we like to say that God, uh, this judge is a picture of God because he can literally come before the court and he's guilty, right? No matter how much good he's done, Pat is still guilty of this speeding violation. He's still broken the law. And it would be just for the judge to convict him and give him a fine or whatever the, the punishment may be. But we oftentimes like to illustrate that uh, this judge could be like Christ and say, you know what, I'm going to throw it out based on my merit. And we have this small yet not full picture of what Christ does with sin. And I say that it's not full because here's the reality. If the judge so chooses to pardon Pat or anyone else in a case like that, he just throws it out and it's written off and nothing is paid and nothing's on the record and you keep going. But that is not exactly what Christ has done. You see, what Christ has done as judge is he says, you know what, you're guilty. 
doesn't matter how much good you've done and this one sin deserves death. And He doesn't just throw it out and let you walk, although you do walk, but Christ pays the debt. Right? There's that, that picture is really minuscule if you consider what Christ has done. He's, he's a greater judge and He's a, a, a greater Savior because He doesn't just wipe it clean. He wipes it clean because He pays it in full. And see, these people didn't understand that. They didn't understand this angry God. But therefore, we have to come to the conclusion that it's okay for God to be angry. In His anger, other men will see the goodness of God They'll see the true picture of who God is because God is an angry God. God is a sovereign God. He's a saving God. He's a loving God. He's all of those things. And if we did not know the anger and the wrath of God, we could not understand what the cross actually means. And so we see that this is taken from Psalm 95, but it's speaking of this wandering Israel in this desert. And it's applicable even to this audience in the Hebrews. Because they were wondering. And they were about to incur the anger of God. And that's why he's saying today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Listen. Heard Pat talked about it or this morning. Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. Be saved this, from this generation. This untoward generation. This evil generation. This perverse generation generation and that's exactly what god was doing here saving his people and this generation starts from the very beginning i believe you know uh, some people want to talk about this replacement theology and i won't get into all of what replacement theology is but i have a better replacement theology that christ as this judge that we talked about Knowing that the wrath of God is abiding upon the head, he becomes not simply one who writes off the sin, but the replacement. That's why the Bible doesn't say that he is just some record keeper that crosses out your debt, but it uses the word propitiation. One to stand in the stead And so if you want to subscribe to some kind of replacement theology, subscribe to the replacement theology that says Christ has been my replacement because the anger of God was coming towards me. How many times do we see who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? And we forget about that. The modern Christian church is very sissified and has a very low view of God, a very perverted view view of God we do not see God often as angry we don't often see God truly as just and in fact we would rather in our own mind for God to be unjust and we have our own sense of perverted justice but what we must be reminded of is that this is the God of the Bible and he is describing himself for the people of Israel for those who are receiving this epistle originally and for the church today. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. Now you may sit in the pew and you may think, okay, he's angry with this generation. That's not my generation, but I tell you, God 
allowed and purposed this text to be written because we are not so far off. This is our generation. I mean, it describes us. They always go astray in their hearts, it says. And we're going to get to that in a minute, but God is really describing all of mankind since Adam. There is this anger that is coming. And if you don't believe that God can be an angry God, I'll submit to you that not only does the Bible talk about God loving, but it says God hates. And it doesn't simply say that God hates sin, but multiple places it says that God hates a people. God hates workers of iniquity, not works of iniquity, but workers of iniquity. This is serious business. It's business that we cannot handle. And so I just wanted to take a closer look at the anger of God as we would like to tell people about this because if we speak only of the love of God and leave out the anger and the wrath of God, God just isn't so godly. God just isn't so powerful. And I would tell you that God is not so wonderful if you do not understand the wrath of God. The love of God without the wrath of God is not very wonderful at all. I mean, if we don't consider anger and we just consider acts of love, well, my mother seems pretty loving at times. You know, your neighbor may seem pretty loving at times. But what makes the love so great is that, you know, in the moment that anger could come about, hey, love looks a whole lot better, right? Because this person could hate me, and that's exactly what the people of Israel deal with. That's exactly what the people of God must deal with. That at any moment, it would be just for God to look at me and be angry. It would be just for God to look at me and to condemn me. And so this God who is altogether more loving than anyone that we know is also righteously angered. And he's angered by his own people. I want to give you several examples. Deuteronomy chapter 9-8. Even at Horeb, you provoke the Lord. And we always see this. God is never angry, angry without provocation. It says it there. They provoke me in the day of trial. And then it talks about anger a few verses down. God is never unrighteously angered. It's always a provocation. It says, you provoke the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. Boy, this is relevant to us. And this is relevant to you who have not been saved. God is so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. But he places you somewhere where the gospel is being preached so that you may be repentant, so that you may believe in this son who is offering everlasting life. Exodus chapter 15 verse 7. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger and it consumes them as chaff. You know, we have an issue and, I, and I'm going all against my notes here. This is stuff that I have later. But we have an issue really with sin, right? And what many people would say is that we need to, to put off sin. And there is, some, there is some truth to that. But what we forget is we cannot put off sin. We are not able alone to put off sin. We need something of God to consume it. It draws to consume thy gold to refine as we sing in the hymn. And what I would tell you is 
much like the replacement I was talking about a few moments ago, if we want to win the battle with sin, the victory is in Christ, right? Victory in Jesus. Another, this is why hymns are so great because they're theologically accurate and some of the modern music may or may not be, but we, we know the hymns and they're, they're theologically depicting salvation in Christ, victory in Jesus. Again, here's another real replacement theology for you. That for sin to be conquered, Christ must conquer it. So what do we do? The Bible doesn't say, hey, you can beat sin yourself. The Bible says there's only one victory over sin. It's through Christ. To, to battle, we must have this weapon of war that is the Word of God. What is the Word of God? It is the living Jesus Christ. He, therefore, is battling sin for us. So what can we do? We can replace sin with Jesus Christ. There's another replacement for you. You can't beat sin. You can't overcome sin. But what you can do is be filled with the Spirit. That's what the Bible says. What can you do, Christian? You can follow Jesus Christ and be filled with the Spirit so that when you're filling up with the Spirit, He is emptying you of sin. Therefore, you're able to avoid this wrath of God. Not because the sin is gone, but because the Savior is here. Consider this. Exodus chapter 32, verses 10 and 11. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Talking about these very same people that are being referenced in Psalm 95 and Hebrews chapter 3. Why is God showing us his anger? Because he's about to show us goodness. He's about to send the Christ. He's saying, my wrath is always here and it will always be here because it is an attribute of God that he is angry over sin and he will always be angry over sin. And we better be looking for this Messiah. Unto us a child is born. Mighty counselor. Wonderful counselor. Everlasting father. Prince of peace, Isaiah. I didn't choose this. Pastor's wife did. No. Mighty God. Mighty God. Job chapter 4 verse 9. By the breath of God they perished. And by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. Doesn't that look like life is in the hands of the Lord? And that his anger will only ride so long until it is met with his execution. The execution that says sin deserves death. Isaiah 13, 5, they are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons, the Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land, an instrument of God's wrath, that God is sovereignly using wrath to end a people, to save a people. Jeremiah 32, 29 
Chaldeans who are fighting against the city will enter and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses where people have offered incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. They have provoked God with sin. Everybody's got their Baal. Everybody's got their sin. Don't think that God isn't provoked by your sin. Don't think that because you're in this building this morning or because your parents are Christian or because your grandparents are Christian or because you've attended so many church services that you will be somehow exempt from the anger of God when you sin against God. You've seen Him. You've heard Him. And we'll see in just a few moments what He says about that. Numbers 32, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years. Anger burned against Israel. Chosen people. Don't think that you're exempt from God's anger. Don't think that we're somehow above it or below it or out of reach. But the fire of God's wrath and the truth of Jesus Christ is what melts away all those impurities. That we're replacing sin with Christ. So many more. If you want to get to the New Testament and see it. This Jesus who is man. Who is high priest. Who is prophet. Apostle. And whom we know is God himself. Therefore, he must be angry about something, right? Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he called and said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Jesus was angry. Angry at sin. You want to know how that you can know without all the other verses that tell us that Jesus is God. Do you want to know how you can know that Christ is God? Because he was angry with sin. And you and I are not. We're not always angry with sin. In fact, we love sin sometimes. The Bible is very clear and it's about to be very clear to us this morning as we read these passages. But many times over and over, you brood of vipers, you terrible sinners, the wrath of God is coming. Who is warning you? Are we warning people to flee from the wrath? And when we say flee from the wrath of God, we don't mean somehow like Adam try to hide in the garden, right? That's not how you flee from the wrath of God. To flee from the wrath of God is to run to the arms of Jesus. To kneel at the foot of the cross. This is what fleeing from the wrath of God actually doesn't mean turn from God and run. It means turn to God and run to Him. How can you do it? You must come to the Father through the Son. You can't flee from anything else by running towards it, right? It's just not natural. We flee from the wrath of God by running to the God-man Jesus Christ. This is what the text is saying. So many times 
we see it over and over, the wrath of God. And it's causing us to know that this Christ is serious and know what He says about sin is true, that it is damning and that it is leading us to hell. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. Turn, if you will, to Leviticus chapter 26. funny this chapter is about obedience look at verses 24 there through 28 we'll start with 23 it says and if by these things you are not turned to me but act with hostility against me then I will act with hostility against you and I even will strike you seven times for your sin I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence among you so that you shall be delivered into the enemy's hands. When I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven and they will bring back your bread and ration amount so that you will eat and not be satisfied. Yet... If in spite of this you do not obey me but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sin. That's the wrath of God. And you know what? If God only punished us seven times for our sin, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough punishment. Notice what the text says. It's being spoken to the church. I was angry with this generation. And then we saw it in Acts chapter 2. Let's read it again. Saw it this morning. I was angry, it says, with this generation. And so we see the establishment of the church. We're talking about the apostles and their work the church Peter the one whom the church is being built on Christ being the chief cornerstone here it says and with many other words he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them saying be saved from this perverse generation you know what I don't like dispensational theology because it draws a distinction between what God was doing and what God is doing now and why we do recognize some some differences and we must see the similarities. This is the evil and perverse generation. The untoward generation, it says. The very same generation that goes back to the people of Israel captive in Egypt because of their sin. And somehow we don't think we're captive to sin. We think we're free. We're Americans. It's not what the Bible is saying. This is the very same generation. A perverse generation. This is the one who has eyes but cannot see. Or the one who sees but does not heed. The one who has ears but does not hear. Or the one who hears but does not listen. This is a 
perverse generation. All these kind of dispute dispensational theology because these are generations of much grace. How can I say that? Because God says one sin deserves death. In the day that you eat of the fruit, dying you shall die. And what does he do? He brings a Savior. Men will face death. But for some, for all, the first sin that we commit is not punished by death. That's grace. And we can say that these people are delivered from Egypt. They've been provided for in the wilderness. They have food. They have water. They have shelter. Cloud. And we likewise have the grace of God because we are sinners. And we have incurred the same wrath by the same God. Deserves the same punishment. And yet we're spared. Aren't we a generation of wanderers? Aren't we in a wilderness? I was angry with this generation and said, and here is God speaking, God declaring, God making known His way, God sovereignly decreeing what is about to happen. He's swearing to act upon this anger and this sinfulness. And he says, they always go astray. Word always doesn't leave any room for exclusions. This doesn't leave room for an exclusion for them, anyone after them, and it doesn't leave an exclusion for you and I. Always go astray. Prone to wander. Always going astray. The truth is that what God is depicting here is what true faith should look like. Men are always going astray. And he's talking about, because he says it, in their heart. Why? Because the tongue is so wicked so deceitful, the tongue will say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust in God. But the heart tells the truth. And the tongue is so deceitful that we even believe it ourselves. Why? Because we have ears and don't listen. We know what the Lord expects. We disobey. We are severing our conscience. We are hardening the heart. We're believing that lying tongue that says, yeah, we believe. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Look at Genesis chapter 6. Everybody ought to get this one really easy. Genesis chapter 6. And what did he say there? They always go astray in their heart. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were very beautiful and they 
took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because also he is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Then the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. Those who were mighty men who were of old, men of renown, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually, it says. Always astray in heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Who truly knows that they're being self-deceived? It's a very dangerous thing to hear the word of the Lord. And even dangerous to be saved. And then not to continue. And that's what Hebrews is dealing with. This Jesus of their confession. Consider this calling. Heavenly calling. Partakers of such. Those saved by Christ and then somehow they would turn from it. And we likewise are extremely susceptible. We may stray in heart. And then it goes on and says, And... Because these two always accompany each other. If you go astray in heart and they did not know my way. If you stray in heart, you will not know God's way. That's why we must write it down. Bind it upon ourselves. Be always in the word so that we may know his way. Taking sin instead of trying to Combat it on our own, being filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that He will combat it for us. Knowing Christ is knowing God's way. And knowing God's way is finding the only path to righteousness. Very interesting. All of this text to tell us one simple thing that Christ alone is able to save. To show us that we have no ability in the flesh. What God says about not knowing Him is that for those who do not know Him, there is no rest. What did Jesus say? Come to me. and I will give you rest. And what the author is saying, Spirit of God, through the penman in Hebrews, is that you will have no rest unless you know this Jesus Christ. The one who you claimed to believe in just some time ago, but now you're following your fathers again, your own self-righteous ways that are leading to hell. Turn back. Hold fast to this confession. Likewise, it was being said to Israel, there is a son who is coming. And without him, there is no rest. 
And without rest, that must mean that you are without a Savior, Jesus Christ. And so to bring this full circle, consider this Christmas message. Where is the rest? The rest is in Christ Jesus. We sing joy to the world. And it says a Savior reigns. And that we're to sing songs, hymns, spiritual songs. In glorification of God. In worship of God. To consider this Christ who has been given. This babe, if you will. But the truth is that this babe, as we see, even in his birth, depicted a great reality for the Christian that as he was about to come, no one had room for him, right? That is what the heart is like. Without Christ coming, the heart has no room for him. The heart doesn't want him. We're all full here. Full of sin. Full of strife. Full of bitterness. What Christ has done. He has come. And the song says. Let every heart. Prepare him room. Seemed terrible when you were a kid. To think that. Man, this baby Jesus is coming. He's going to be cold. He's going to be wet. And these people won't even let you come in the bathroom and have this Jesus. They won't let you in the house. They won't let you in the barns, the stables. And we think, man, the people were awful. They were mean. They were ugly. But the song Joy to the World says that you and I are ugly. We have our heart. So full of bales, so full of sin that we must be commanded and remind him to prepare him room. Room because Christ is the only replacement for sin. Christ, he who knew no sin, became sin so that his blood would be spilt. And that the blood would be applied. How many hymns have you thought of, Brother Charlie? Tons, right? So that the blood is applied. There to my heart was the blood applied. So that in Christ you would have salvation. Now we know several people, Bethany and I, and I'm sure Cassidy does too, and maybe you have, people that don't like Christmas. And they say, you know, it started as a pagan holiday. And this Christmas tree, it's terrible. And if you're a Christian, you can't have that. And you can't do Easter. And I've had people say that. And I kind of got their point. But you know, I thought about it today. And I thought, you know, the homosexuals want to take the rainbow. If they can try to take the rainbow, you can better believe Christians can take Christmas. And we can make it for Christ. Because that's what we do. Every day as unto the Lord. Every day A Sabbath. Why? Because Christ fulfilled the Sabbath. He fulfilled the whole law. Every day we have rest. Every day can be Christmas. 
And you better believe it can be the 25th too if we want it. Every day is the Lord's day. We sing another song. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it because this man has come so that man can see God. And this God has come, Jesus Christ, so that man can be seen by God. The only way that we can come into the presence, the only way that we can be reconciled in the flesh to God Almighty is to have one who bridges the gap, this Jesus Christ who has been born of a Virgin Mary, who has died, suffered upon the cross, risen and ascended as God, dying as man, living as man, so that sin could be conquered. Now the question for us is, are we provoking God? Are we making God angry? And I would submit to you that yes, we do. And yes, we will. And we have done so today. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be looking to this baby Jesus Christ, who is the man of God, the Lamb of God, wonderful counselor, perfect righteousness. We're to be at the foot of the cross and nowhere else so that we protect ourselves by the Spirit of God from having a hardened heart. A hardened heart is what causes you to come to church and doodle on paper. Check your cell phone. Talk to the person sitting next to you rather than listening to Jesus who is speaking. Not me, to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 said it. Speaks now in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. Radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. This is the Christ of the Bible. This is the Christ of Psalm 95. This is the Christ of Hebrews chapter 3. And I would say it ought to be the Christ that we serve. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we come before you, Lord, we're just thankful uh, for Jesus Christ Lord, we know that uh, December is not his birthday, God, but we just ask that you would enable us every day to celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, but even more so to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. The one who has willingly, Lord, obediently gone to the cross and died when we, Lord, won't even pick up a cross. God, we just ask for your mercy. And your grace today that you would forgive us, Lord, of our many sins. Forgive me, Lord, of my sin before your people and before you, O oh God. Lord, that we would live righteous and that we would live according to your word. God, and we just ask that you would hold back your anger and yet chasten us, Lord, when necessary. That we would come to Christ and stay or that we would look to Christ and pray and that we would trust in Christ every day, God. Let us not be deceived by our hearts, Lord, or 
any false gospel. Lord, and we just praise you uh, for this work, Lord, that we know with all certainty is being done because we belong to him, the good shepherd, living water, or the bread of life, the true vine. This is our Christ. Lord, we thank you for him. We lift him up, Lord, ask you to receive our worship. Lord, and as we partake of the meal, I would just ask that you would bless our bodies, Lord. Lord, that something that you created would be digested and give nourishment to your creation so that he may live but a moment longer to glorify you, God. We just thank you for it. Uh, the many intricacies of your creation, something only you could do, Lord. And we give you credit for it, Lord, and just ask you to continue to bless it um, in abundance according to who you are as the Almighty. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This time we're going to have James Jr. come on up. You'll take the hymnals and turn to 815, 815. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.
was on 66, so I had to put it on 67 to get it to come on. Oh, 66. We had it set at 64. Oh, so, 64. Yeah, because when we had it on 67, they burned you up. Is that right? Oh, that's right. We can turn it off. It, it, was, it wasn't cold when we came in this morning. It feels cooler now than it was this morning. Yeah. Well, that's hard. Uh, you know, they say a, a thermostat is not supposed to be on the outside wall anyway. Yeah. It would have been better off if it had been put on that wall. But yeah. At least it's got to, uh, some wind break. Yeah, wind break there. Well, in all honesty, Charlie, we could put it on that wall right there by the door. Yeah. That's about as interior as we got. Yeah. Or Figured even even there above the. Job. Figured you another job. Okay. Well, you know, really they try to put them in by the uh, uh, return. Mm hmm. There you go. Just put it somewhere Jody can't reach it.
smoothies and the, you know how they got vegetables. That's all we usually do. We yeah. just sit over here and eat. Huh. Ain't that what we usually do, Charlie, on New Year's? Just sit over here and eat?
I really don't. That one. Well, I think, yeah, the gospel that came in, what was it, Amos? Somebody, he preached. Oh, she's talking about. He got like that. Mike. Yeah, Perry. Mike. How about Chad? He gets nervous. He only does it because Greg asked him. I've tried to talk to him a couple times about stuff like that. We ought to go get that game Christine and Nathan had. Yeah, we ought. Maybe we'll go find it this week. But she said it should Uh, I'm paying Social Security. Does that cost nothing? Well, we appreciate it. Yeah. Somebody, somebody yeah. got to pay for it, right? Damn, I quit paying it. Yeah. Democrats just took $6.4 billion paying for this new Yeah. So you quit paying it? Yeah. They said he would. I don't know how to pay for it. I don't think so. I was trying to. All my money is Social Security free and tax free. No, I'm just like, no, I'm not. I'm just, li- li- I like listening to Ken. It, it cracks me up. <laughs> he said he can outwork them kids, too. Well, yeah, there was Security. It's just a wood block. Security, the Social Security stuff. A 
game that all of it's got cards, got uh, marbles, uh, different things like that. You just put on cards, uh, yeah. the board itself, it comes with cards. Put it in there, you the way it's made, you can take cards and stuff down inside. And you yeah, thought about it one time. About that long, maybe that long. Can, and you, when you're playing the game, can somebody's social security get cut?
Ken to start this one. We got some earmuffs. Yeah. 
you would like to, open your Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Bible, chapter 18. I want to begin by just reading a large portion of this chapter, and then we'll pray. It says in verse 8, chapter 18, Moses told his father-in-law that the Lord had <clears throat> all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians <clears throat> for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey, and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord hath done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from the morning until the evening. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as a judge and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me. And I judge between a man and his neighbor and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, The good thing that you are doing, <clears throat> excuse me, the thing that you are doing is not good. You sh will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God and you bring the disputes to God. Teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. 
Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. Let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times. The difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade his father, father-in-law farewell, and he went his way into his own land. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Mighty God, we just come, Lord, asking you, uh, as you would hear our prayers, Lord, to speak to us as a church, as a people of, of yourself, God, a people that belong to Christ, Lord, that we would uh, look to the Scripture and that we would be comforted by it, Lord, that we would be uh, increased in knowledge by what it has to offer, Lord, that we would be submissive to this word and that we would delight in it, God, and that we would do what you have set before us in obedience and not just obedience because we know that we should, but, Lord, make us uh, obedient in love because we enjoy uh, serving you, God. We just ask that you would bless our time in the word and that you would uh, give to us uh, bountifully and abundantly the knowledge of Christ in these scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Moses speaking uh, about the people of Israel there with his father-in-law. And, and what we see is that there is, to some degree, uh, a great plague amongst the people of God, right? Right? And uh, there's things happening one right after the other. And what we see is Moses having to handle these disputes. And as he's having to handle these disputes, he's overwhelmed. And so can be uh, life in ministry. And I know a lot of people that have very difficult dealings uh, in their churches. I know people that have left churches because there are not people to to handle properly the word or to uh, to lead the people, and I'm just thankful that although we've had our times and things here, we haven't dealt with something quite like that. And I recognize that with Moses having to do that, there is a, a great responsibility. And so when I, I see this passage, it does most specifically talk to us and speak to us. Uh, through Christ about what Christ is doing for his people, but it also depicts for us leadership in the church and uh, our responsibility as all members of the church uh, in our behavior and in our obedience. And uh, we'll see some of these similarities as we look at it. But what we what we first notice is that uh, no notice that Moses is accredited as being a great man of faith, right? 
and that Moses we even saw, and, and I, I picked this portion out because it has everything to do with uh, what we see in Hebrews chapter 3. It says that he was faithful in all his household, right? Always faithful. But the very first thing that we see is when there is a problem, Moses is not attempting uh, on his own when the problem is too big to seek out an answer himself. And the Bible is very clear that there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And that uh, for us, Moses is going to an elder man, his father-in-law. And uh, I look at that and say, wow, that's a perfect picture of what we are to do in the church, what we are to do outside of the church, and, and what creation was, in, in essence, created to do, following Christ and serving Christ and glorifying God the older men are to teach the younger men, to teach the younger men, and, and likewise with the women. And we should be able to go to the older man and expect some wisdom. The reality is that we're in a fallen world, and because of that, because of sin and because of the curse, we can't always do that. We can't always trust the word that we're given. We can't always trust people. And that's just something that we have to deal with. But what I first notice is that Moses is able to go to his father-in-law and speak about these problems. It says it came about that he would judge the people and the people stood about Moses in the morning all the way till evening over and over again. And you know, the, the text goes on to tell us that some of these things were very serious and in other words were very minor. And, and we can read that uh, in the scripture because it says they'll bring the, the most important stuff to you. They'll bring the heavy, the weighted stuff before you. But we're going to put these people in place. This is the idea that I have. Uh, and so be it, uh, this counsel, God be with you, he says, the father-in-law, as he's speaking to Moses, that you appoint men to do these things. But what I also want us to see is that... Uh, when he saw this, the father-in-law says, "This thing, what is this thing that you're doing? Why do you sit alone as judge? And in that is, is the essence of the gospel coming forth. That a true judge is able to sit alone. That also tells us that man is very unqualified to be judged, right? There's only one man that I know that can sit alone and judge all matters and judge them 100% correct in every situation and judge them in a timely fashion and, and judge them according to what he knows and what he foreknows. And that's Jesus Christ. So what we have in Moses really is a picture of man coming to, to judge these people and one who is able uh, called to judge alone in the first part of the passage and cannot do it. So what we have here is this picture of Moses, a man supposed to do this duty and he cannot. And then we see and think New Testament believers. We think of Christ as we saw today, this morning in the text, Christ as the judge, the final judge. The only judge appointed by God in this situation to, to weigh out the matter in eternity. And he is able. And so what we see is man's inability in Moses and God's ability with Jesus Christ. And all of these things are foreshadowed in the passage. But it says, uh, what is this thing that you're doing to judge all the people? And they're there all day. It's a weighty thing. You can't handle it. You grow tired and you grow weary. And now we're seeing how Moses is so unlike Christ and that Christ no longer grows weary. 
Christ no longer grows tired. Christ doesn't need counsel from an elder. There is no elder. He is the elder, the, the oldest brother, the Bible says, the firstborn among many brethren. Therefore, we see uh, in the inability of Moses to judge, we see the, the ability of Christ to judge and that he fits the bill better than any Moses, better than any Abraham, better than any Noah, better than anyone that you've ever seen. And that is the point that we see in Hebrews, that Christ is far superior. But continue to look, to look back and to see this with a, with a New Testament perspective that we've seen Christ, that we know Christ, what is going on here. He says... To his father-in-law, I do this because the people come to me to inquire of God. Now, there is still existent this model, so to speak, in, in the church. And that is why an elder or a pastor is supposed to be available uh, from the people to inquire of God. But there's a little bit of difference here. Uh, that Moses knew all of what God expected and these people were ignorant it seems. And Moses was serving as a mediator, a go-between. But now what we have is Christ as a mediator and go-between. So there still exists some role like an unto Moses with the church, but it's not the same because I can't uh, go to the Lord and tell you exactly what he's thinking because you haven't heard it. But the truth is that Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that God has spoken. And so now the job of this person uh, to be anyway compared to Moses, the pastor and elder or, or leaders in the church, is to not point you to what God has told me, but to point you to what God has said through his son, Jesus Christ. And so now I don't have to go, God, what would you have this person do in this situation? What is the problem here? I can say, you know what? We don't have to do that. God has already said in his word, it's outlined. Let's go to the text of scripture and let's see what it says about the matter. And what we see about that is we're re-emphasizing the superiority of Christ because now we don't go to a man to talk to God. We go to the Bible because Christ is speaking to us in it. It's personal. And that's what we have. When they have a dispute, it comes to me. I judge between a man and his neighbor, and I make known the statute of God and his law. What did Christ do when he came preaching the gospel? The gospel of repentance, the gospel of faith and salvation in him alone. He came telling man that I will return to judge. I will judge. God will judge you. The wrath of God, the anger of God is a real thing. It's abiding upon your heads, and you will be judged accordingly unless... You believe and repent. And that's what Christ was saying. What is he doing in that? He's also making known the statutes of God and his laws. He's saying, here's what God expects and here's how you failed every time. On this point, you can have the commandments and you can pick the 10 if you want to. Or you can pick all 600 whatever there is throughout the Bible. But the reality is that here they are listed and here they are listed again where you have failed. This is... The, the statutes and the precepts of God that are made known in his laws only revealed to us through Jesus Christ. We may not know the law of God. We may not see the righteousness of God. We may not see the perfection that he expects unless we first know that Jesus is the Christ. And then if we know that Jesus is the Christ, then we see that he's perfect. 
here. He's perfect here. He's perfect here. And all through the list of the commandments. And he's fulfilled those. And only he can fulfill those. And therefore now we know, God, we don't come to you to do things for righteousness. We come to you because we cannot obtain it any other way. We cannot do. We cannot work. We cannot pray righteousness. But it must come through God. And Moses' father-in-law says to him, that thing that you are doing is not good. It is not good. It's not good to look to man for the answer. And I believe uh, as we see men will still be established. I believe the reality is the failingness of man is revealed in that what you are doing is not good. Why is it not good? Because you are doing it. That's why. Good deeds are like filthy rags. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we want it, no matter how much we focus on trying to be right, we will fail. And like Moses, we have a father who's speaking through his son and he is saying, what you're doing is not good. It won't work. Never will. He says, you will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. Well, what do we see in that? We see that if these people were coming with issues, they were coming with problem, we must know that a problem has to be rooted somewhere in sin, right? Somewhere down the line, every problem is connected to sin. Even if we have to go back to Adam. Well, the reality is that these people were before Moses, day in, day out, sunrise to sunset, and they were too much, too worried about getting these problems solved. They couldn't have been working first. They couldn't have been serving God. And keep in mind at this time, we're going to have people who, are, who will sacrifice, as we see. Sacrifice animals, sacrifice whatever. Uh, they'll bring something before the Lord. But if they're not working, they won't have anything to sacrifice. They're, they have been so called up in wanting some kind of earthly justice that they forget to serve the Lord. And so I believe this is also a problem. Keeping people from their work. And that's part of it. You'll work this ground, he says. You'll sweat. These people weren't even working because they were too bitter towards one another. And they were having to work out these issues. And he says to him, you'll surely wear out and these people with you. You cannot do it alone. You cannot do it alone. How about that? Anytime that we need to be reminded during a problem, during a hardship, during a trial or temptation, we just need to go to chapter 18, verse 18, and look at the end. You cannot do it alone. In one sense, it's, it leads you to be discouraged, right? Except for we know the Christ. We can't do it alone, but the good news is that I am not alone. Lo, I am with you always, Jesus says. Now listen to me, I will give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God. Praise the Lord that this did not end with Moses. That Moses wasn't the best that God could do for an intercessor, for a mediator. But rather what we see is they're setting up this idea that there must be Come a man who is more righteous than I. There must be a man who is more righteous than the rest of the men. 
And there's how we're going to get this picking out of these good men. But what we see in that is that we likewise, if we were, and we're not, if we were more righteous than the last man, if we were the most righteous generation up until now, we should come to the same conclusion. We need a better representative before God because I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to go before God. I'm not worthy to represent the Christ. And that's the reality that the church faces. But the good news is that we do have one mediator between God and man. This is the man, Christ Jesus. It's literally saying, this is the man, God, man. This is Jesus Christ. But see what he says. He says, you be the people's representative before God and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. What did Christ do? Let me ask you that question. How did Christ fulfill this particular passage? Let's listen. You be the people's representative before God. You bring the disputes to God. You teach them the statutes and the law. You make known to them the way in which they are to walk and work that they are to do. Only one person fits that, right? Only one person does that. Moses didn't even do it, right? What a picture of Christ. Representative. Disputes. Bringing them before the Lord. Showing the statutes. Teaching the people. Uh, making known to them. That's what Christ is doing. That's what Christ is doing for His church. And this is the portion of the Scripture where we kind of shift gears from what the people were doing here in the foreshadow of Christ into how this represents literally how the church is to function if she is to serve Christ and if there's the, the many members are to serve one another. Here's the shift we start seeing. Furthermore, you shall select of all the people, able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these as those over leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. First Timothy chapter 3. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, husband of one wife, temperament, temperate, excuse me, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or, pug <clears throat> or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be able, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and will not uh, fall into the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must be also first tested and then, they, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. 
Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious, malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacon must be the husband of only one wife and good man, managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. You ask how that plays in. Well, let's read that one more time. Exodus chapter 18, verse 21. Furthermore, you shall select from your people able men, men who are willing to work, men who are willing to serve. Able men, it says. People who fear God. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This is the understanding of who Christ is. And we saw in that passage as it moved uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 to the deacons, it was talking about they were, they were solid in the faith. They were holding strong. This is the reality of what we see in verse 21, that they truly fear God. Men of truth, respectable, believable, a good rapport with even the unbelievers. Those who hate dishonest gain. And you shall place them as leaders over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and of tens. And when we see that, we see how important it is, even in a small church, fifties and tens. Fifties and tens. That the leadership, that the men of the church, let's take it down to its lowest level, that the men of the church and the older women of the church fit these qualifications. And what it tells us, because people like to separate the God of the Bible from the New Testament and the Old Testament, is that God is still angry with sin and that God still deals with sin in the same way and that those who will lead the people of God will lead the same way that they've always been and the qualifications have never changed. What pleases God has never changed. And what will continue to please God will never change. In no form or fashion will God ever accept lying, stealing, homosexuality, adultery. None of these things will He, will he accept. They don't become common and okay. And I believe the Bible is teaching us that, that the same qualifications have always existed for leadership. And you know what? If you don't like that, if someone doesn't like that the church should be led this way, you can leave the church and you can go somewhere else. But God is calling you as a man, and a man who will have a family someday more than likely, He's calling you to these same qualifications. You will not escape them. You cannot hide from them. And thus we see the same thing that we saw this morning. That as the, the Christian on the individual level to, to run, to flee from the wrath of God is actually to run to Christ. We see that the church is likewise in its leadership and in, on the individual basis as well is to run to Christ for righteousness for all of these things are not obtainable without Him. You can't be truthful. You can't be able to teach. You can't be one who hates dishonest gain unless Christ has changed you. So in one sense, we're, we're seeing how the church should operate, 
how the church is to be submissive to the word and how it should always have been, how the people of God always were to be submissive to his word. But we're also seeing how ineffective we are in the flesh. How unable we are to lead anyone. We must have a change of heart. We must have a representative before God that is not Moses, that is not Abraham, that is not Tim, it's not John. We need a representative before God whose name is Emmanuel, Jesus the Christ. This must be our representative. And we but only need to only need to know the way to him. Prayer, supplication, that Christ has come to his people. They hear my voice, another they will not follow, is what Jesus says. Then we continue down. After they've selected these people, he says, Let them judge the people at all times. And let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. And here is where church discipline, I believe, is established, even in the Old Testament. We love to say, hey, you can't judge me. I bet you everybody in here said it at one time or another. I mean, I, I just, I'm so confident because I've probably used it. I, I can't think of a time, but I'm pretty, it sounds like something would come out of my mouth. I don't need you to judge me. The reality is that we have the picture here for the responsibility of the church, even in the Old Testament. It says, every major dispute they will bring to you. Now, who is this you? We know in the spiritual sense, the greatest you that it's talking about is the Christ that was to come. This man who is mediator. It once was Moses, now it's Christ. The major stuff they'll bring to you. But the stuff that is covered, the minor stuff, we're to be accountable for it, guys. We're to be accountable. And so how does that work out? It really works out a little different than it sounds. So what we have is the, the, the visible sin, the sin that we're aware of, is going to this mediator, Jesus Christ. Right? And we're letting him deal with that because he alone is able to deal with sin and he alone is able to convict but his spirit is doing just that so it says don't quench the spirit but be filled with the spirit so that the spirit will testify to us in a time of sin when we see the sin because we know god because we know christ we know the statutes we know his laws we know what he expects because we know that when we see sin we go before him in prayer and supplication and christ is pleading with us in spirit and god is forgiving but when we don't see the sin when it's not visible when we're arguing with ourselves, or we're arguing with our neighbor I, I think I'm right and the neighbor thinks they're right what do we do we go to the leaders the church this is the habitual sin this is the stuff that is blinding, that you know what God says. And, and here's the thing, church, church discipline doesn't work unless, unless one is uh, submissive to the word. If you're not willing to go to the scripture, it does no good. It does no good for your brother to come to you in sin or, or during a, uh, a time where maybe you said something and somebody mistook it and it was just seen as offensive. Maybe it wasn't sinful. Maybe they were just offended. But does it work unless the person is submissive to the Lord? 
submissive to the work. And likewise, that's why the last portion is that, that these people are removed from the church because they do not accept the authority of the Word of God. And so we see the model of that here with these people. They have a mediator. We have a mediator, Christ. They have one to judge these smaller matters. We have a conscience. We have each other. We're to hold each other accountable. That's what we're to do. That's what the church is called to do. To be like Christ in every way. If Christ is willing and if God put men as judges here in this particular portion of scripture. If he's done that he has said man is able to see sin and he is able to discern. So when there is sin in the church or outside the church amongst believers. We are to be able to come together and discern sin. We're to be able to see that. And we're to be looking for that. If we're not looking for sin, we're not looking to Christ. That's the reality. That's what Christ is doing, right? He's combating sin. He's, he's made a victory over death so that we don't fall captive to sin and, and death and hell. And what He is doing, He is beating sin out of our lives. He is cleaning, He is cleansing, He's washing, the Bible says. If Christ is looking for sin and He's looking to get rid of sin, what are Christians to be doing? We're to be looking for sin. And guess what? The sin that we're looking for is the sin that we love so much. That's the last one we want to think about. That's the last one we want to give place to. This is the truth. If Christ is looking for sin... We need to be looking for sin. And when we find it, we just turn it over to Christ. We can't beat it on our own. We can't take care of it. Let them judge the people at all times. And let it be that every major dispute they'll bring to you, but every minor dispute with themselves. So it will be easier for you. Think about that. Every minor dispute with themselves. The minor stuff, the minor stuff, the Spirit is leading. And we have to recognize that. It's very dangerous for us to be sin police. You know, you might see me get angry. You might see Ken get angry. You might see Charlie and Pat. We're men. We get angry sometimes. But if every time we see them get angry, you see me get angry, you come and tell me, you're not letting them deal with sin. Not allowing the Spirit to deal. And you know what? If we believe that the church is full of Christians, we need to be uh, very careful. We need to be long-suffering and gracious and give time for sin to be sought out. Now, when it becomes a habit, that's where we change, right? But that's what we have to do. We have to realize, you know, what we understand as, as mature Christians as sin, the new believer may not understand. And it's not saying just hold back, but there's a gracious way to bring it about. Say, so, you know... I used to do things like that. I just was convicted by this scripture. And that may be the best way to deal with it. But what it says there is that the major disputes they'll bring before him. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. Now, if we see this as a picture of the church, Moses as a mediator, then it won't be hard to see this. Christ is dealing, Christ is judging, and Christians are to take up their cross and bear a burden. The difference is what Christ says about this burden is he said, my burden is light, right? The weight of sin is heavy, and we're swapping with Christ. 
His righteousness also is a burden, right? If righteousness was easy, we wouldn't need the scripture to tell us about it. But it, 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 there is some burden to being righteous. There's burden in this Christian walk. But we come to Christ and He takes the heavy weight of sin and gives us the light burden of righteousness. And it's beautiful. It's a, it's a wonderful exchange. So that it will be easier for you. So that it will be easier for you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, he said, "If only do this. Don't do it because I said it. Do it if the Lord it confirms it for you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people will go to their place in peace. Isn't that wonderful? Able to endure, all these people will go to their place in peace. That's what Christ says." Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that's what this picture is. is a picture of the love of Christ for His people. That He comes and we sing the song, Jesus took my burden. I could no longer bear. Yes, Jesus took my burden. In answer to my prayer. This is a picture of what is happening in Exodus chapter 18. This is for the church. This is for the New Testament believer. If you do this thing, you're able to endure. If you're submissive to the word, if you're accountable to one another, if you're seeking out sin. Notice he didn't say, Moses, you know what? This is too much for you to handle. Just go home and let them fight it out. That's what the modern church is saying to Christians, to members. Don't get your nose caught up in that. Just let, let them handle that. I know the local church right now where one of the members is openly living with someone that they're not married to and everyone in the church knew it for sure. The guy's not, he's not even covered it up. And I talked to the pastor's son Who's, this is his friend and he said my dad knows about it and I said well what's he doing he's the pastor and he said dad said he's not getting in it doesn't want anything to do with it it doesn't sound like Christ to me I want us to be very clear that sin is destructive and you may think that if you're a Christian, that you can come to church and that you can sin and there's no punishment. But what this says is that you turn sin upside down when you bring it to Christ. When we keep each other accountable in the church and you're able to endure you're able to go on. You're able to move further. And also what it says is that you'll go in peace. There is no peace in sin. If you don't believe it, take the same situation that I'm talking about. The couple, they love it. They love it. That nothing, we don't see a problem with it. The family's not happy. There ain't no peace there. The other family's not happy. There ain't no peace there. 
The same situation is like that with any sin in the church. And when I say the church, I mean the people. Lying. I can tell you a good example of that. The people who are doing the lying are okay. But there is a disruption. There is no peace where there is sin. What are we looking for when we come to Christ? Salvation and peace. Every epistle that we see somewhere talks about peace. And most times we'll say, peace be with you. There's no peace unless there's Christ. In essence, our salutation to one another should always be Christ be with you. Because if you got Christ, you got peace. If you're not following Christ, there is no peace. We need to be able to come to one another with sin and with this burden. And no matter what we think about it on the individual level, let us go before the mediator and see what his word has said. If you are sinning, if there is open sin in your life, and we all have sin, I have sin, and we continue in our sin, there is no peace. My wife can tell you. I get frustrated when she drives. And sometimes she don't stop fast enough. Scares me. I think I'm going to die. And seriously, y'all think I'm joking. I'm not kidding. It's my weakest point. I know it is. And I get mad. I thought because I'm about to die, right? I got stuff to do when I get home. And I get mad. And I tell her, I was slow down, slow down. So she don't slow down enough. And then I raise my voice. I mean, it's just a natural thing to do. Stop! And even if she doesn't get mad, I have no peace. And then I get even madder because I say, now you're mad. No, I'm not. And I'm mad because she's not mad. <laughs> they're, they're literally, that is a situation where there is no peace. Even when there is peace, I'm making it unpeaceful because there shouldn't be. She shouldn't be so gracious to me when I'm like that. But that's the reality of just even minor sin, that there is no peace apart from Christ, that there is no salvation apart from Christ. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel, made them heads over people, leaders over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They judged the people at all times. The difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would, would judge. Sin is sin, minor, major. Bring it to the cross. And you know what? Here, here's the reality. We as a church need to be able to come to one another with sin, personal sin, and sin against one another, and tell one another without getting mad or without, uh, <coughs> without condemnation. Without condemnation. Let's avoid, let's avoid a, a, a hasty or an ugly judgment. And let's come together and admit and confess our sin, as the Bible says, so that we can escape this wrath by going to the cross. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you, Lord, we're just thankful for your word, God. We're just thankful for the church, Lord, and we just ask you to cleanse us from sin, Lord, and ask that you would convict us of sin, Lord. We know... Um, that 
sometimes sin seems to be the easy way out. Sometimes sin seems to be uh, the cheaper avenue, God, the more affordable thing. But the the reality is, God, that for uh, for sin and habitual sin, Lord, it is very costly. Lord, and when there seems like there's no other way, uh, if we would choose righteousness, we know that Christ has already made a way. Lord, I've seen it in my own life. Lord, in marriage and with dealing with the church, that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. And Lord, that when I think that doing the right thing would be so costly and just unobtainable, God, you've shown me that you will always make a way. You're always faithful. As Moses was faithful in Allah's house, so has Christ been. Lord, I just pray that everyone here would realize that and Lord, that we would, whatever sin is in our lives, that we would do our very best, Lord, to correct it, that we would seek it out uh, at any earthly cost, God, uh, that we would uh, be justified before you with the blood of Christ and his righteousness and that we would walk with you in glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.